0: You are listening to Cathonia, the podcast of the dark feminine. Cathonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpere. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Cathonia, the podcast that explores the realm of the dark feminine. My name is Breege Burke, I'm your host. And in this particular episode, we are going to look at nightmares and the concept of the night hag or the night hag syndrome, which is uh, connected to the nightmare. Uh, Now, this episode that I'm recording directly follows one um, that I recorded on the goddess Lilith. And Lilith, if you'll recall, has a reputation for being kind of a... um, She's she's a she she's she's she has this, a reputation as this kind of um a sort of demonic figure, demonic female figure, uh, and one, at least one of her attributes was to um you know if men had uh, premature uh, ejaculations at night or nocturnal emissions as they like to call them, uh that Lilith would be there to scoop to take them and you know presumably having sex with them at night. And to produce uh, hordes of demons with these nocturnal emissions. I suppose this goes along with the, um, inve- you know these sort of um, cautionary tales against uh, masturbation and and you know uh, wasting one seed as, as as one would you know, like, uh, think of it. But the reality is that um, <clears throat> you know this is. Th- but it's interesting because this this particular sexualized aspect of um, you know of sleeping. And having the uh, this this quote unquote demon woman come in the middle of the night, um, and you know for this sort of nefarious sexual purpose, uh, fits in with the whole theme of the night hag. Okay, so now what are we talking about with night hag and night hag syndrome, and how does it relate to what we think of as a nightmare? Because a nightmare, of course, is what it's a it's a, what we think of as a bad dream. We wake up, something alarming happens or frightening. Uh, we either encounter something frightening or something frightening happens to us or we have a sensation that, um, you know, we're, I don't know, about to die, about to fall off a cliff. I don't know. There's, there's all kinds of permutations of what we tend to think of as a nightmare in the modern sense. Um, now, the etymology of the word, the first time we've seen it used to describe kind of this um, this experience that we're, we're talking about today uh, was used by Samuel Johnson in his uh, Dictionary of the English Language. Um, and that's connected to, it connects it to the term um, mare or mere from a pro-Germanic uh, Maron or also the Old Norse Mara. Okay, in the English language, that's where it comes from. And there's some suggestion that um, it might be related to the Greek Maron. Now, Maron, interestingly, um, appears in The Odyssey. Uh, as a priest of Apollo, and uh, offers Odysseus um, sort of, you know, various wines, and Maron is actually associated with the god Dionysus, um, and and with the maenads and with uh, early winemaking. He's sort of described sometimes as a silent or Silenus type figure, which would make him more of a uh, of a centaur. Um, or kind of a, a, you know, sort of half-human, half-animal kind of, of spirit, uh, you know, at least associated with that, which would make you know Maron kind of a a sort of earthy, more you know, elemental kind of being, and of course wine and wine making, and the figure of Dionysus himself, uh, definitely, even though not considered to be an underworld deity per se. Although his connection with the mystery cults, uh, that, that could be, there, 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 is some, there is definitely, Dionysus does have an underworld connection, but that's not considered to be his primary attribute. Um, <clears throat> so this whole idea of um, wine or the taking of wine, um, you know, connected with Maron. Now let me just say real quickly about that, um, the idea of being, the idea of what we call theos. Okay, Um, we hear the word theos when we think of theology or theocracy. It's a word that we use for something um, that relates to religion or to religious scriptures. Theos is kind of a word that's used, it's kind of a root word that is used to designate God. Um, But what it really meant to the ancient Greeks was the idea of possession by the God. So when one drank wine, one was possessed by the God. Okay, and this was kind of, probably goes into the same category as uh, taking hallucinogenics or, or other substances to achieve certain um, ecstatic experiences. And it's that ecstasy, that divine ecstasy that is really associated with Theos. So we might see a connection here between the idea of Maron as a winemaker, as wine, <clears throat> which can potentially bring um, various ecstatic visions, but also like a lot of... Um, any kind of substance that alters your mind, it can also bring about very terrifying ones. So perhaps there's a connection. I don't know that that particular aspect of it has been proven, but since the, the etymology of uh, Mara seems to also be related to Maran, possibly, um, there's that uh, aspect to think about. <clears throat> the other um, possibility is the old Sanskrit term Mara. And Mara is the Hindu goddess of death. Okay. And that's very interesting because the idea of this, um, figure, uh, that comes and, and torments you at night, uh, you know, that, that, that sort of connects in with at least my own thesis about, um, the, the sort of fear of unknown and the fear of death and our the ways in which we, um, you know, sort of, um, the way that our, our minds, uh, the, the unconscious parts of our minds can, can negotiate that symbolically, um, now, we also have to wonder whether or not there's a connection between the term mare, uh, which refers to a horse. Um, now, I, I'm not seeing a whole lot in the etymology of this term, That at least not from what I've seen in my immediate researches. It's quite possible that with a lot more digging, you know, that that etymology might be there. Um, but the term mare also, as we know, refers to a horse. And certainly in, in European culture, the, there's a relationship between those terms. Um, now, so... I'm going to consider that the that horse or equine connection, mainly because you find that as part of this what we call this night hag experience, the person has a sense of feeling like they've been ridden. Um, uh, David Hufford, who's done a lot of research on the old hag syndrome, um, he's a, kind of does a anthropology and, and, and folklore in Newfoundland, has said that there's there 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 does seem to be a direct correlation between. Uh, the idea of the witch riding, you know, taking the person at night <clears throat> and riding them, or you know, forcing them to ride with them, or riding on them, and this experience of night hag syndrome—that there does seem to be a, a relationship between those, um, you know, these the sort of uh, phenomenon. Okay, um, I want to talk, but as far as the horse goes, um, so therefore this idea of riding or being ridden—we also think of the broomstick with a witch, but. Um, in, um, I'm looking at uh, Sarah Isles Johnston's books, The Restless Dead, because this is immediately what came to my mind. Um, I'll, I'll just read her paragraph on the horse from that particular work. She says, In Greece, the horse was strongly associated with Poseidon, a dark and marginal god of the frightening sea and destructive earthquake. And I will add from my own notes, I, when I talk about certain deities sort of being the shadowy aspect of another deity, I kind of see Poseidon as a shadowy aspect of Zeus. Okay, and that, but I, I can talk about that um, further another time uh, going on. Uh, according to myth and cultic tradition, Medusa and Arrhenius, or Demeter Arrhenius, now Arrhenius, if you don't remember, if you recall, are the Furies, okay? They're, there's the the three um, um, scary women who, uh, you know, they're they're the ones who torment Aristes, and then they're also, you know, and they're also um, play a great role in the Aeneid in instigating the war between... Um, the, the sort of uh, the Latins and um, Aeneas's um, group, and uh, you know, and, and in, in certain um, traditions, the Furies are also associated with um, punishing you know what we now think of as sinners. Not that wasn't necessarily a concept at that time, but at least you know, not, not in ancient ancient Greece, Babylon, or or any of those traditions, uh, we don't have the idea of sin as we think of it now. But once you started to have an idea of sin, the Arrhenius, as long as they were still part of that experience, were considered to be sort of hellish um, beings or punishing beings. Okay, so Demeter Demeter Arrhenius, she is the one. she's the angry Demeter who has lost her daughter and uh, who flees from Poseidon in the form of a horse, but he overtakes her and and rapes her. okay Um. Now here she says, each assumed the shape of a mare to become consorts of Poseidon and subsequently bore him the false pegasus, the the winged horse of Greek mythology, and Arion. At one time, Arrhenius and Medusa um, probably were Chthonic goddesses, with beneficent as well as maleficent sides. But from Homer on, they represent the threatening aspect of the Chthonic world, appropriate mates and mothers for horses. Although the horse, particularly when ridden, could be a positive symbol for the Greeks representing victory and salvation, its connection with the Aeorae, which are the restless spirits, particularly female restless spirits, surely draws instead upon the darker connotations represented by Poseidon and his consorts. So, you know, so we have Medusa, and of course everybody, I, I, I rarely mind run into anybody who doesn't know who Medusa is, uh, certainly the, the woman with snakes for hair who, uh, whose visage would uh, turn you to stone if you look directly at her. Um, Medusa will be the subject of yet another episode. Um, but you have this idea, so you have this cathartic connection with the horse, and the horse does have kind of this darker uh, connotation, as well as it, you know, as as um, Iles Johnston points out, the, the connection with sort of victory and salvation. The horse also has another connotation. Is that connected to the nightmare as we think of it? And eh, some later artists certainly will have uh, images of night, the, the quote-unquote nightmare, which include. Um, a kind of menacing-looking horse in the background. So maybe that's not such a a weirdo connection. Um, So this is all just by way of background. Where do we get this term nightmare? And what does this have to do with the hags? Well, um, let's talk about the experience itself. Now, again, this is from um, David Hufford. Now, David Hufford actually has an entire book that... um, I think it's called the the, um, the terror that comes in the night. I could have the title wrong on that. Um, I will update both the Cthulhuia page and the YouTube page with the correct citation for that. Um, for anybody who would like to explore that work, um, I had an interesting synchronicity when when prepping um, as I do for these uh, these podcast episodes. I have to do some research before uh, I sit down and record. And uh, concurrently, what I've been doing in my home is I've been, you know, looking at books that it's like, okay, you know, how many years has it been since you've used this book? Can you, you know, can we, can you clear out and get rid of some stuff? Because I, I have a house jammed with books, as you might imagine. And one book that I pulled off the shelf that I hadn't really looked at, um, that I picked up as a discard at my public library was called um, American Folk Medicine. And it was edited probably, I think, I'm, I'm, I want to say it was like very early 1980s, like maybe actually 1980. And so I just sort of flipped through it, and amazingly, as I was prepping for this episode, uh, David Hufford has an article in here on the Night Hag, and I thought, whoa, you know, there's, there's that's, what we, that's what Jung would call a synchronicity, a meaningful coincidence, where it's like I'm working on something, and because uh, I was just thinking, oh, I'm going to have to try to get his book through Interlibrary Loan. I'm going to have to try to find it. I don't know if I have enough time to do that before recording. Um, and then I have enough of a summary here that uh, I don't actually need to get the book. So that was a uh, fortuitous thing. So, okay, so from Hufford's actual book, he describes, he, he gives the sort of um, layout of what the night hag experience is. So uh, the first, there's, he, he lists um, four components to it. One, waking up during the night, or, um, or occasionally, he says, it occurs before the person falls asleep, which um, kind of uh, interferes with the whole sleep paralysis, um, another term, by the way, for this experience, which we'll talk about. Um, but this person, so this person either wakes up or isn't, isn't asleep yet, maybe just falling asleep. Uh, hearing and or seeing something come into the room and approach the bed. And then three, being pressed on the chest or strangled and therefore feeling suffocation. And four, being unable to move or cry out until either being awakened by someone or finally breaking through the feeling of paralysis, at which point all of sensations usually cease. Okay. So there is a. Um, it is very much, uh, you know. There so there, these seem to be the basic components of the experience, uh, almost regardless of where in the world it occurs. And one of the things that's interesting about this experience is that it is a worldwide phenomenon. It is not something that's limited to one particular culture area. Now, Hufford studies um, what they call old hag syndrome because there is a, there's sort of a folklore surrounding that in the Newfoundland area of Canada. Um, but, this whole, but the old hag um, idea, this idea of being suffocated by a being and then not being able to move, um, is not limited to Newfoundland by any means. It seems to be kind of a universal experience, uh, which is very interesting. Um, And again, I mention here in my own notes that it's akin to the experience of sleep paralysis, which is that experience that one has where they wake up and they're confronted by some kind of a figure and a feeling of suffocation and being unable to move. And there's been a lot of research into um, sleep states, where one is in in terms of their uh, REM cycle, um, whether or not that's been interrupted you know, and there's been theories about, well, you know, it has to do with the position in which you're laying at night um, and so forth uh, that might um, cause an interruption in your breathing and then make you wake up and think you're having this experience. There's all kinds of um, neurological um, discussions of what goes on and, and what might cause it. But in every one of those explanations, all it ever talks about is, well, the person may be prone to having a hallucination. And this you know, brings me to my essential question, which is why why that experience. Uh, and I have this about it's not just you know this the phenomenon of sleep paralysis is not the only um, example of something that I feel is um, you know that that I have this question about. I have this question about. Um, The hallucinations that people have in either a demented state when they're on, uh, say, on morphine, or they've just come out of an anesthesia, or they have a very high fever and an infection, um, you'll find that those hallucinations also tend to be very similar in character. And the question is, my question is, why? It's like people say, well, they're they're hallucinating because you know this this chemical thing is happening. Okay, that chemical thing is happening. Why are they seeing this? Why? What what makes the brain decide that you're going to see hags or that you're going to see water pouring out of a wall or that you're going to see um, you know rats coming out from somewhere? I mean, what what makes these experiences? You know why these hallucinations? To me, it should be in theory it should be different for every person. You shouldn't be able to predict what the hallucination is going to be. That 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 part of it has never really been adequately explained. But see, I'm also somebody, and probably there'll be those of you out there who disagree with me on this. But I tend to think of neuropsychiatry and psychology as representing effects and not causes. Um, they can, they can explain what happens to you during certain conditions, but they doesn't actually explain what it explains the how it explains. Oh, okay. Well, when you're having this experience, this particular chemicals flooding your brain and this and that, and it's very unsatisfactory in terms of an explanation of, um, why you would have that particular symbolic experience that has never been adequately explained. And I doubt it ever will be. So anyway, that's kind of an aside. taking a moment here just to make sure I've, <laughs> I've settled my microphone stand on top of my notes, which was not a very bright thing to do. Um, so here we are. So I'm just going to look, I want to talk about some examples of the night hag in folklore, okay, because um, there is, uh, you know, because again, as I mentioned, this experience is very common around the world. And this has been taken from a conglomeration of en- encyclopedic places that I found on the internet. Um, so I'm just going to just go through some of them just to give you an idea of how prevalent this particular phenomenon is. Okay. So in Scandinavian folklore, sleep paralysis is caused by a mare a or a mare. Um, my, uh, by the way, my apologies to people in other, um, parts of the world if I absolutely butcher your language here. I'm, I'm pretty good with some languages and there's many which I'm not, so, Um, so anyway, apologies in advance, uh, caused by a mare or mare, a supernatural creature related to incubi and succubi. Okay. So what are incubi and succubi? These are the sexual aspects of the, uh, experience. An incubus is considered to be a male spirit that climbs on top of a woman, like a demonic spirit that, that sexually assaults a woman at night. And the succubus is his female counterpart, counterpart that lays on top of men, and does the same thing. Lilith would be considered a succubus in this particular um, instance. Okay. Um, The mare is a damned woman who is cursed, and her body is carried mysteriously during sleep and without her noticing. In this state, she visits villagers to sit on their rib cages while they are asleep, causing them to experience nightmares. The Swedish film Marianne examines the folklore surrounding sleep paralysis. Okay, um, now next, uh, next thing, uh, folk, I believe, Newfoundland, South Carolina, and Georgia describe the negative figure of the hag who leaves her physical body at night and sits on the chest of her victim. Victim wakes with a feeling of terror, has difficulty breathing because of a perceived heavy invisible weight on his or her chest, and is unable to move. That is, experience of sleep paralysis. This nightmare experience is described as being hag-ridden. Okay, there's the idea of riding in the Gullah lore. Uh, the old hag was a nightmare spirit. In British and also anglophone North American folklore, okay. Uh, in Fiji, the experience is interpreted as kana tavoro being eaten by a demon. Um, although in Fiji, it's interesting because they believe that this is a spirit of a dead person or an ancestor, and that this person might be feeding on them. You know, there's the, the concept of the hungry ghost. Uh, when I talk about the aore in um, uh, Greek myth. Another another episode I'll talk about, and the aore a- 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 being particularly a female variety of uh, restless dead. Um, you know, we'll we'll talk about some of these other comparable figures as well, and certainly the hungry ghost phenomena in Asia is um, is part of this. <clears throat> so in, in 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 Fiji, of course, is much farther south. We're talking more about you know, close to New Zealand and Australia, but <clears throat> it, it's very interesting that you have this very similar tradition of um, the ancestor that needs to feed that's hungry. And uh, so they will often let the, the ancestor feed meat so that they can give whatever message or unfinished business they have to give, and then they either um, curse it or chase away the spirit um, after this happens. Uh, in Nigeria, this appears to be far more common and recurrent among people of African descent rather than whites or native Nigerians, okay? And uh, often referred to with African communities as devil on your back, okay? Uh, so that's interesting because this this is an idea of riding of not sitting on your chest but actually on your back um, And this seems to be a variant um, variant I've experienced actually which I'll talk about um, I, I have a I, I plan to talk a little bit about I've had two experiences with sleep paralysis in my in my life which are actually quite at variance with these they're related there's some that are aspects that are very similar and some things that are at variance at least in how I interpret them So uh, I will go back to that. Turkey, sleep paralysis is called uh, karabasan. Okay, and um, it's worth noting that uh, in Mongolian culture, uh, nightmare is referred to as um, karadarahu, meaning to be pressed by the black or where the dark presses. Okay, and there seems to be a relationship between um, karabasan, um, and that, and you now in Turkish culture, the karabasan is related to the jinn. Okay, which are spirits. It, there's um, jinn, the jinn folklore that comes out of uh, Islam and out of that particular part of the world. Um, the jinn are usually spirits who were here before uh, man, before humans were created and are actually, um, so in a way they're almost like have status of um, the, the beings of the golden age, for instance, in Hesiod, you know, who, who t- assume the, the characteristic of watchers. Uh, in the book of Enoch these, these are the, you know some people consider the the watchers to be um, these beings of a golden age who look over humanity they're sort of they're, they're almost like protohumans, but they're somehow great they have greater than humans, have greater power than humans. but humans of course, then become the favored beings on the earth by you know by the monotheistic gods, certainly. and so these other beings become very resentful of humans and try to either destroy them, manipulate them, or bring them down in some way. So the jinn is, is associated with another manifestation of the hag, which is uh, the, seen as, a, as some kind of a being or creature that wears a hat. And the idea is that if you can remove the hat from the, the jinn, that you can enslave the jinn if you're brave enough to do that. But the jinn climbs on top of the person and then tries to strangle them. Okay, so there's the suffocation. Um, here it says, To get rid of the demonic creature, one needs to pray to Allah by reading the Al-Falak and Al-Nas from the Quran. Moreover, in some derivatives of the story, it's why I said the djinn has a wide hat, and if the person can show courage and take it, the jinn becomes their slave. Okay, Um, now back to the Mongolian one, uh, this idea of where the dark presses, this has to do a lot, um, there's a relationship to um, uh, Mongolian shamanism. The term kara means black, um, just as it does in the Turkish, Karabasan. Uh, and may refer to the dark side personified. Karin Bu means the sh- shaman of the black. Shamans of the dark side only survive in far northern Mongolia. Um, while uh, Sagan Zu- Zugin Bu means shaman of the white direction, referring to shamans who only invoke benevolent spirits. Interesting how we have this light dark uh, split here. Um, and this says to even compare, compare uh, Karabasan. Okay, which may date from pre-Islamic times when the Turks had the same religion and mythology as the Mongols. Okay. Um, there's examples of this in Chinese culture, Korean, and again, these are associated with um, ghosts and spirits that um, lay one down. The, the uh, Japanese term actually means being bound or fastened by metal, which is, which is interesting. It's called as a kanashibari. So it's almost yeah, almost like being being chained, an experience of being chained, which is rather interesting. Um, in Korean culture, uh, gawi nulim, being pressed down by something scary in a dream. Okay, um, and uh, dipnon or dipfok in Tibetan culture, which translates roughly as oppressed or struck by dip, which literally means shadow. Um, <clears throat> and let's see, Cambodian, Hmong culture. Um, Again, there's this idea that um, there's something, you know, some kind of ghost or spirit attempting to strangle the person. And that sudden nocturnal death syndrome, and perhaps also with infants, you know, SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, also sometimes are associated with these beings. Which makes sense if you consider that the hag tradition, um, that these um, sort of scary women, night creatures are also associated with child stealers, so that's not um that's that's of course in um <clears throat> Hmong culture. Vietnamese culture, um it's called Ma Day being held down by a ghost, or Bong Day being held down by a shadow. Um now it's uh, in Pakistan, Kashmiri mythology, an invisible creature called um Pasikdar or a Saya. Um some people believe that a Pasikdar lives in every house and attacks somebody if the house has not been cleaned or if the god has not been worshipped in the house. Okay, It's interesting because that almost goes back to the um, idea of household gods and spirits and the, the way in which they have to be uh, maintained. There's kind of a, a, a hint of not only household gods but also ancestor worship in some of these ideas. Um, Pakistan, they, can, they uh, encounter with shaitan, which is another name for Satan, or evil uh, jinns or demons, as we said. Um, and they seem to feel that young girls are particularly vulnerable to this, um, which again is, is interesting if we consider the, um, the idea of these, um, dark feminine figures as appearing, uh, for women in particular at different, um, stages of life, you know, different stages of life changes from childhood to adolescence and, um, from, uh, adolescence to motherhood and so forth. Um... Okay, so there's, there, like I said, there's there's a lot of other examples that you can find um, throughout the Middle East, throughout Africa, um, in Europe. Uh, Finnish folk culture called sleep paralysis is called, uh, let's see if I'm going to get this right, um, unihalvas, uni, 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 okay, I'm not, I do not know any Finnish, so I'm sure I'll be corrected on that, um, but the Finnish word for nightmare Pana I'm sure I'm not saying that right, is believed to originally meant sleep paralysis, as it formed from the word um, panaja, which translates to pusher or presser. Okay, um, Icelandic folk culture, it's generally called having a mara. Okay, so that's very similar to the uh, Norse uh, goblin or succubus, since it's generally female, believed to cause nightmares. Okay. Other European cultures share variants, calling her under different names: Maron, Mere, Mar in German, Dutch Nachtmeri, Icelandic, Old Norse, Faroese, and Swedish call Mara, Danish Mare, Norwegian Mare, Old Irish Morrigan. Okay, so that's that makes the um, this creature akin to the Morrigan, another figure who um, we will discuss at length in another episode. Um, and, and, and the term Morrigan sometimes was generally. Um, used to describe a, what um, would have translated as a lamia or a night creature. So um, very interesting there. Uh, Mora, Mara, um, Bulgarian and Polish, um, Kokomar in French, uh, Moroi in Romanian, Mora in the Czech, and Mora, M-O-R-A, in the Slovak. Okay. The origin of the belief itself is much older, back to the reconstructed Proto-Indo-European root Mora, an incubus from the root Mare to Rub Away or to Harm. Um, And then there's some other um, etymologies that may also suggest that the root word has to do with doom. Okay. So, uh, Greece and Cyprus. uh, Sleep paralysis occurs when a ghost-like creature or demon named Mora, uh, Vronhas or Varipnas tries to steal the victim's speech or sits on the victim's chest, causing asphyxiation. Okay. Okay. in the Americas, during the Salem witch trial, several people reported nighttime attacks by various alleged witches, including Bridget Bishop, that may have been caused by sleep paralysis. Um, Mexico, it's believed this is caused by the spirit of a dead person. Um, uh, people refer to this as subirse el muerto, the dead person on you. Okay. And parts of the southern United States, uh, this is known as hag or being hagged. Um... And uh, it, it's noted here that in contemporary Western culture, phenomenon of supernatural assault or thought, although we don't know by whom, to be the work of um, what are known as shadow people. Victims report primarily three different entities: a man with a hat, the old hag noted above, and a hooded figure. Okay. Um, okay. So let me uh, just looking to see if I have anything else. Yeah, there's there's more examples than the ones that I've given. I've gone through quite a few of them, probably very badly, um, at least in terms of pronunciation. But, um, but nonetheless, we, we have some commonalities in these experiences. So let's talk about what, we, what these experiences have in common. So first of all, we have the depressing figure um, that's either described as a hag um, or as some, you know, as some kind of a figure, masculine or feminine, usually feminine, that rides someone. Or, or climbs on top of them. Or, as we've noted, in some cultures, it's a, a djinn or other being wearing a large hat. Or a hooded shadow figure sometimes is what appears. Okay. The idea of riding a person's chest, um, and I says that perhaps that makes the connection of the witch hag riding a broomstick. And some hags also torment horses, by the way, which continues that theme. And that kind of gets into fairy lore um, because it's also connected with the phenomenon where uh, horses appear to have their... Um, tails and their manes braided which people say was done by the fairies Um, although supposedly there is a sort of some kind of disease that's associated with the hair kind of getting that braided appearance but um, but this is so you you, again there I I think the the horse connection is not uh, unwarranted there Um, now my question again is why is it always the same you know why why do people perceive it as either being a hag or being some kind of a dark figure um, or being something that sits on the chest, and the, you know, and it's these things occur in kind of a semi-awake state. The person's not in a dead deep sleep when this happens, and they're aware enough. They just they just can't move, and they can't do anything about it. There's just something. <clears throat> there's a figure there, and they are completely unable to move. And <clears throat> fear is not only the paralyzing factor. Okay. Um, And I'll, you know, I mean, at least it's not not claimed to be, you know, people say it might be a fear response to something. But there's there's literally like the muscles just just don't move. It's not until you're able to physically break out of that. And and there's no speech either, because in in those conditions, you can't yell out to somebody and say, hey, you know, so it's uh, so it's it's a it's a sort of frustrating uh, sort of helpless thing. Um, let me talk about the characteristics of the hag for a moment. Um, first of all, you're talking about a feminine figure that is old or that is ancient, okay, and who's generally considered to be unpleasant in, in appearance. Um, you, know, you have the appearance of younger women who you know are, are beautiful. Of course, those sometimes you have women like that who appear in the succubi uh, format, who are there as who, are, who who follow the the archetype or the um, sort of. Um, aspect of the feminine temptress, okay, which is, um, you know, the you know, and, and they, they, those, these are the women who sometimes they say end up having uh, feet of an animal or something, um, but they have very beautiful faces. But here, when we talk about the hag, we are talking about an old woman, okay. Uh, you might want to think about the gray eye if you are familiar with Greek mythology. Uh, the gray eye are three old women um, who are blind. They share a um, sort of a glass eye between them. If anybody saw the Clash of the Titans movies, you know, the the gray eye are featured there. Perseus steals their eye and gets them to tell him what they want to know. Um, And yes, they are old hags. They represent old age and the terror of old age. And they're supposed to be cannibalistic hags. Okay, they they devour. So there again, you have the dark feminine as devouring. And of course, there's a motif there of age as being devouring, that it devours your life and and takes it away because eventually old age will mean death. Um <clears throat> but the gray eye also are blind and within Greek myth um, and and Roman myth really, uh, blindness is actually um, associated with prophecy. The idea is that you don't have outer sight but you do have inner sight. Okay so Tiresias the prophet is blind. Um, Aeneas' father um, <clears throat> Anchises um, he when he had, when he you know brags about the fact that his son is the... Um, you know, the, he's born by the goddess, the goddess of love, which he was told not to do. Uh, Zeus gets back at him by striking him blind. Um, and then he, then he gains the gift of prophecy. <clears throat> Even um, Polymester, in um, the, uh, the play Hecabe, after the women, you know, he, he's the one who violates the hospitality rules and, um, by killing uh, Hecabe's son, uh, Polydorus, who's been sent to stay with him. Uh, during the Trojan War, and when he realizes the war is going badly, he decides to kill Polydorus, bury him somewhere, and then take his gold, and uh, when this is discovered, through Polydorus's ghost, uh, the women all get together. We're now enslaved by the Greeks, but they all get together in the camp, and they, they confront Polymester and jab his eyes out, and as soon as he jab, they jab his eyes out, he begins to prophesize. Okay, blindness is associated with internal sight, so, so we have this idea of sort of a wisdom, an internal wisdom, uh, a wisdom that could be learned with age and experience, but it's also kind of a wisdom about nature, uh, that which is very ancient and very old. This is where we had the idea, the old idea of respecting the elders or the wisdom of the elders. Uh, we don't necessarily have that today. Um, it's very interesting how, um, you know, one gains, you know, experience and knowledge over the years. But as they get older, people become very childlike again because their their minds start to go. You know, when if dementia sets in, then, you know the mind starts to go. Um, but the hag does represent that, you know, one of the things at least one could be terrified with the hag is not only the loss of um, perhaps what we consider to be a physical attractiveness, if you're a woman, um, there's, there's the barrenness, okay, there's, there's a lack of fertility there, um, because the hag is considered to be past childbearing years, and also the fear of death, okay, that, you know, it's <clears throat> they're a reminder that, you know, uh, one may live a long time but won't necessarily live forever. Um, and the appearance of the hag is always considered to be malevolent or harmful. <clears throat> now, why? Um, is the hag a figure that is trying to, um, you know, re- in the vampiric sense, try to regain their youth? Well, that's not entirely out of the question, as the experience can be a very draining one. Okay, It's one where you feel, feel like your energy is being sapped from you by whatever it is that you're encountering. Um, now, Hufford in particular doesn't necessarily associate this with the experience, um, but uh, but it is um, but but that that at least is part of the terror that you you have that that powerlessness and you feel like you are um, you know your your inability to move is kind of can be also connected with a feeling of you know not being able to exert your energy or not you know or having your energy stopped or put on hold. Um, in, but see, now this experience is also, I mean, we, we have the hag, but then we also have the, the sexual side of it. And that's what makes this almost an entirely chthonic experience, because you've got this idea, um, this fear of death, this kind of witchy sense of, um, you know, knowledge of, you know, ancient knowledge of the earth and everything, which kind of makes it akin to um, goddesses like Hecate, for instance, who are um, <clears throat> mistresses of magic. You know, they're associated with the moon, um, perhaps with the waning moon um with and with the sort of dark knowledge you know knowledge of things that are you know that one knows of by night or in the dark or things that are you know darkness in this sense being connected with what's hidden the term occult has to it literally is, is it comes from the latin word for that which is hidden it doesn't have anything to do with evil or devil worship it has to do with what's hidden and trying to discover uh secrets or what's hidden okay uh, but the association with sex is there too in the episodes that seem to have um, a, a sexual function or purpose. Now, the, the hag ones in particular don't don't necessarily seem to have that. I um, one doesn't. know, but the but but when you if you take if you merge the negative archetypes of sort of the temptress with the witch, and so you have the quote unquote scary old witch, and then you have the attractive young one. Um, you you kind of mix up this idea of um the 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 temptress who will lead you down to sheol as as Proverbs says or you're talking about the um you know this 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 female who in some way represents the opposite represents barrenness um and and maybe you know and and there may be an attack there because there may be perhaps a reference to either taking your life force away from you or you know this this is kind of a, a sort of imminent reminder of of death um so it's um so it's an interesting uh thing to talk about now how how prevalent is this experience uh i'm going to go back to hufford for a second and at this particular time now again his book that i think came out in the 1990s i think the version i read was published 2000 2001 or something like that um if i refer back to his article he says, uh, although I do not yet have an adequate sample to justify strong statistical statements, he has stronger ones now, but at the time he didn't. Uh, My preliminary results may be summarized as follows. Of those questioned, because um, <clears throat> he did it, it, you know, put out a questionnaire among college students about old hag syndrome, at first he just went through, did you ever experience these particular symptoms? And then his last questions were, have you ever heard of, do you know what is an old hag? And have you ever heard of old hag syndrome? So he doesn't start with that question. He ends with it. Okay, he says, in his preliminary results, um, of those questioned, one-sixth have had the experience themselves, one-fourth have either had it or heard of someone else who has, about one-half know something about the old hag tradition, of those who have had the experience themselves, about one-half do not know the old hag tradition, that is, they were unfamiliar with the term and were not aware of others having had the experience. Of these latter individuals, a number reported complete old hag experiences with the ugly creature, suffocation, and so forth. Um, Other interesting information came to light through the questionnaire, but this disclosure was the most dramatic. And that makes another point, because one of the ways in which we try to explain these kinds of experiences is to say either, well, this is a folk belief in your culture um, and you heard about it. So now, you know, you you had a dream that happened to you. It kind of goes along with... um, Theories that scientists try to put forward about ghosts and and ghostly sightings by saying, "Well, it's correlated with uh, positively with belief." So, in other words, if you believe in these things, then you're going to see them. And I, I have always thought that that is an absolute rubbish um, conclusion because um, I have looked at hundreds and hundreds of cases. I have read hundreds and hundreds of ghost cases. Okay, and probably one of the overriding features is you have people who are actually absolutely um, rational. In the way that they approach things do you have certain people who you know who who, you know jump every time a branch moves yeah you you do have people who are like that um but there are many many people who either listen to those things with amusement and go hmm yeah okay you know nice story or they just don't believe in those things at all and then things happen to them and they strive to explain it i mean the reason the kind of ghost hunting shows that we have now are so popular uh, the ones where people go in with equipment and such is because I, in, in theory, you are going in assuming that um, nothing is going on, uh, somebody has reported something rather dramatic, and you're going in to try to see what kind of evidence you can gather um, in the form of, you know, any kind of energetic changes or any voices one might capture or things like that. Um, now, again, you know, you can talk about how general science doesn't um, doesn't accept these kinds of things and and perhaps the definitions behind them. Well, whatever. I mean, parapsychology is not a hard science. Um, nor is any kind of aspect, a related aspect of ghost hunting. But by the same token, um, there's definitely the sense that people are drawn to the idea of, let's look for the rational explanation first, okay? Now, are there people who are ready to assume that everything is a spirit? Um, Yeah. Um, Are they always wrong? Not necessarily. I mean, we don't really, from an academic point, I couldn't tell you, I I can't define those things for you in any kind of an academic term um there's there's the academic versus the experiential um and uh you know that's that's the piece that is that that's always the um the area of uncertainty if we want to call it um so i just want to um talk about some final considerations here um in relationship to that i'm just again looking back at sort of my notes on this um the experience itself, okay, one, one component of it is helplessness or loss of control. So, um, you know, so this experience, um, whether or not it reflects one's own sense of powerlessness in life or, or any kind of life kind of psychological situation or situation in which one is vulnerable or feels vulnerable, that's entirely possible. I don't think that's been studied, but, you know, that's that's something to think about or to be considered if this is an experience that occurs. Um, there's the idea also of suffocation. Um, so there's kind of an oppression there. So that kind of goes in in hand-in-hand in hand with the helplessness. You're, you're oppressed. Um, there could be a fear of dying or death. In some cases, there may be a sexual component to the nightmare experience um, or a perceived one where one is... Um, uh, incubus, in the sense, I would think, in, in terms of incubate, like, you know, you know, somebody trying to impregnate you, some kind of horrible spirit trying to put something into you, and succubus, of course, the idea of taking something out of you. Um, and in some cases, um, particularly um, in the Newfoundland tradition that Hufford looks at, um, and I'm sure other places as well, if we're not talking about a restless spirit or an ancestor or a hungry ghost, we may be talking about something that, you know, or it could be part of that, but the idea that this could be part of a curse or part of some dark magic that someone may have put on you to send um, <clears throat> sort of this, um, you know, this hag figure or some other kind of monstrous figure to, uh, to harass you. Okay. And, um, and then that brings me to, well, let me, let, me, let me bring this to what my own experiences were with this. Um, i've had two in my lifetime that i could say are are certainly akin to this the first one i had and i can't remember if i was in high school or if i was in college at this point um it was it was it was certainly um i want to say early 1990s so it's been it's been a few years and i remember having a dream about um that i'd perceived at the time a dream about night or about the night And I was walking through kind of like a a sort of post-apocalyptic kind of urban landscape. It was kind of, it's kind of sort of your scary, dreary, you know, urban dark alleys kind of a thing. And and there was kind of a sense of of things being bombed out or burned out um, in this particular dream. And I remember walking at one point, you know, kind of walking quickly, feeling like someone's behind me. And like I need to get to a place of, um, you know, where there's some relative safety. And at one point in the dream, uh, I feel someone come running up behind me with a cackle, okay? So it was definitely something very hag-like. And this woman, like, came up and grabbed me by at the base of my spine, okay? Okay. And it was like, as soon as the hands sort of touched almost like she was trying to like, I don't know if she was trying to grab my waist, if she was trying to tickle, I don't know what it was, but it was a weird sensation. And that actually woke me up. So it wasn't a paralysis situation. I actually, it was like, it was like my spinal cord was on fire and I just woke right up and I whoo, sat right up in bed and went, holy shit. And I was actually shaking for about 20 minutes. I wasn't scared. I was just like, whoa, what the hell was that? And um, so I've had an experience like that one. And I thought, hmm, you know, um, and I, don't quite remember what the other circumstances were that made me associate this somehow with night. I may have been actually doing um, some meditations or workings with the idea of the night goddess at that point, which might be why I made that association. I, I no longer remember, I have to be honest, and I'd have to go through some very old notes that I have, um, that I don't I don't even know if are immediately accessible to me anymore. But um, so you have this idea of, uh, so that, that was one experience that I had. The other one I had while I was living in the house that I live in now, I want to say it was probably 10 to 15 years ago, um, that this happened, um, that I had been in my bed and all of a sudden, I don't know, my cat was with me at the time. My, my cat passed away last July, but, um, he was in the bed with me and, uh, <clears throat> I was laying there, and, and one of the things, one of the determining factors uh, in terms of how I interpreted this experience was the fact that the cat did not move through the entire experience. Cat never woke up uh, and never um, responded to any external stimuli. But I remember laying in bed, waking up, and a dark figure just came kind of up the stairs, around the corner, and it actually didn't climb on top of me, but it grabbed me by the arm. And as it grabbed me by the arm, I felt like my life force was being drained out of me. It was really like a weird feeling. And my response to that was absolute, like, flaming anger, which is generally my response to anybody interfering with my uh, personal boundaries, um, you know, in a way that is, is just, you know, completely uh, self-entitled or inappropriate or, or whatever. I can, get, I can get, on occasion, I can get really, really mad. And I was just like, and I think I was hurling every expletive in the book at whatever this was. And I remember different mantras were going through my mind, um, but one of them was a mantra of the god Krishna. And as soon as I recited the Krishna mantra, the thing all of a sudden let go and it like tore off like a shot, like through the wall. And um, <clears throat> and the next day I remember visiting a friend of mine, a Hindu friend of mine. And she had been, I didn't tell her about this, but she was cleaning out her house and she found a picture of, of Krishna, a young baby Krishna. And she says, she says I don't know why, because I found this in the closet and she goes, I woke up this morning thinking I should give it to you. She says she says, You're not she says but you're not really that into Krishna, are you? And I said, Well, I explained to her what happened the night before and she kind of her eyes she kinda of gave me this look and she stuck the picture in my hand she goes, Take it home. Um and i do still have that picture in my house but um, you know again whether this was something i mean malevolent in the sense that i felt like my energy was being drained yeah i didn't feel like this was something with a very positive purpose but it was also my attitude wasn't like you know it was <laughs> it's, it's very new jersey it was just like what the fuck get, get out of here you know get out of here who the hell you think you are you know, just, you know get get lost you know don't don't don't, don't you touch me um, creep. So it was just, uh, I, I had much stronger terminology for that, but I'm, I'm trying to watch my language on podcasts. I swear like a sailor most of the time. So um, so anyway, it, yeah, so those were my two experiences. I never had an experience like that again. Um, and, you know, given my own sleep patterns, if you if you want to take a neurological sleep paralysis view, there's probably a lot of reasons why I should have had subsequent experiences like that, but I never have. And, uh, I sort of interpret them as, um, you know, given the kinds of workings that I do and the kinds of things that I'm going through, they could be test situations. They could be, um, to me, they could be representations of changes in life. Um, when you're moving from one phase of life to another, I think sometimes, um, you may have these kinds of, uh, vivid dream experiences. And as I mentioned during that last one, my cat did not move at all. He was awake. He was kind of, I could see his eyes were open, but he was not, he wasn't even looking at it. So that's why I don't know That gets back to the question of what is real, okay? Um, We tend to think of what is real as what is material, what has molecular structure, what has uh, some level of um, energetic force, something that we can touch, you know, that that we can experience in a sensory, in a direct sensory way, like, I can touch this. In scientific method, what's quote-unquote real is that which can be demonstrated uh, repeatedly. Okay. Um, if you have an experiment and you can't replicate the results, then generally those are not considered to be reliable results. Okay. And now there may be a reality to all of that, um, a, a factual reality, if you will. But then there gets to what um, uh, Erics, Eric Erickson used to call, uh, Eric Erickson, by the way, the psychoanalyst, not the uh, conservative pundit had once said that um, you could, it was such a thing as what he called psychological truth. He says, which is, I think I'm going to almost quote him directly from young man Luther, "Um, it's not demonstrably true, but it's felt to be true. And then that becomes that, and that kind of is almost, it's in uh, kind of Ericksonian psychology, but it's also, you know, which is more uh, a type of um, developmental psych, but also you, you see it in Jungian thinking, because Jung's attitude is if you've experienced it, then it's real. It's real for you, at least. It may not be real for anybody else, but it has a reality for you and it has a meaning for you. Now, the question becomes, is that is, there, is it is it's Is there still a literal quality to that? Like, did this literally happen to you? Or is it a symbolic thing? But in other words, are you encountering an actual spirit, whatever that is? Or are you... Um, you know, you know, or is this just something? Is this something that you know? Is this something like an extended or more vivid kind of a dream or dream state, um, in which, to, in case the symbolism uh, is speaking to you in a certain fashion, and the, universal, the universality of this experience is something I find fascinating. And as Hufford's pointed out, it happens in far more people than uh, you might imagine. And you know what it actually means. Um, And why is it always the same type of experience? Why is it the variation of this very similar type of like three experiences? And if it doesn't represent any other kind of physical ailment that we can point to, what does it mean? Okay, so you you kind of end up looking at it at the psychological or uh, symbolic kind of or mythological kind of level. Um, where it's likely to have the most meaning. but then there becomes the question of are you actually encountering something that is real in some other kind of sense? And that's more of a question for um, probably people more who are associated with certain types of spiritual or magical practices may you know may have more of those questions and and would be able to speak more directly to those kinds of experiences. Um, <clears throat> and the answer is probably the answer is probably both. There's probably a psychological, Uh, if you think of Jung's collective unconscious where we share a kind of a symbol system and memory with the rest of humanity uh, there's probably an element of that but um, it's a mistake to think that it's just some kind of an unconscious fantasy or thought it has a reality as well Um, a lot of people criticize Jungian theory for saying well like even Alan Watts like it's too internal it doesn't have enough to do with externals it's like no it actually has everything to do with externals but it's but we misinterpret because we think of the archetype as just some kind of a thought. It's not a thought. It's it's kind of a... It's it's something that, that's a phenomenon. And as Hufford notes about this, it seems to be... There seems to be a mythology that has grown up around a real experience, okay? And, and the fact that it always manifests in this same way. It's not like, you know, somebody made up a story about a hag and people started having this experience, okay? It seems to be the other way around. So um, it's... Uh, Interesting question to explore, but it really suits our purposes in talking about the dark feminine because we are talking about, um, you know, uh, the way in which um, certain aspects of the feminine, particularly these either sexual ones connected with sex and death, particularly these very cathonic aspects uh, in the way in which they affect our um, psychology collectively and individually. Okay, and uh, and perhaps in 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 even in more visceral kind of ways. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Um, I'm just going to remind you that I have um, to please check out kathonia.net. There you will find latest um, editions of this podcast, both in audio form and a YouTube video. Uh, I have a YouTube channel called Cthonia, if you would like to subscribe, if you prefer to have visuals to go along with these. Sometimes I don't have much in the way of visuals, but I've been trying to include more when I refer to certain things to have pictures of that or, you know, to have that included in the YouTube version. And I also have other stuff. I have other writings, and I also provide other services as well. I mean, I I do readings, and, um, uh, you know, and eventually I'm going to be providing classes as well. So please check out cthonia.net. And see um, what else is offered there. Um, the podcast is certainly one thing, um, but there's other things that are offered. And I also encourage you, if you are interested in this work and would like to see more of it developed, allow me to have the economics to be able to develop this. Um, please check out patreoncom cathonia if you would like to become a patron. Uh, I'm very grateful to those of you who are already patrons, and um, you know there's there's a lot of different rewards at different you know depending on the donation level. Um, that you can get um, everything from you know, early access to episodes to early access to, to bits of writing, uh, extra videos and, and podcast commentary. Um, and also some swag from the Cthonia store, which you can also check out at cafepress.com slash One word of warning about the store, um, Café Press seems to have a lot of problems with its interfaces, and I've put some things up where I, I set it at one image and then it, it changes it to another one, so I'm still working through a lot of those details, but there's a couple of really cool designs from JR Malpair. I've just gotten a couple of them myself. If you're on my Facebook, Twitter, uh, or Instagram. Also, which uh, um, I'm under cthonia podcast, on those particular um, uh, social media platforms. Uh, Catonia podcast, two words on Facebook, one word on the other two. Um, the, you know, you, I have some pictures up there of myself actually showing you uh, at least some of the new uh, tank tops that are out. Uh, they need some slight adjustment, um, but I have those and uh, I have some, you know, there's, there's coffee mugs, water bottles, there's all kinds of stuff uh, with those designs. So if you think those are cool, and, you know, sometimes they're just cool just to have them. Um, they're, they're really, uh, were really nicely designed by J.R. Malpere. And, uh, you know, so check those out if, if you like those designs and would like to have them. Uh, and with that, I uh, thank you for listening to another episode, and we'll talk next time.